Welcome back to the Wardens of Westeros podcast. I am one of your hosts today, Bauer, and I am joined by Matt. Hello, hello, everybody. I hope your uh, tear ducts have dried up from our good Stark reunion that happened this week. <laughs> but I do hope everybody is doing well. This is our episode four recap and review for the fourth episode of season six. A uh, lot going on, a lot to talk about, but before we get started, um, this episode is sponsored by the Bolton Shave Club, and the razor of the month is the Ramsey Razor, always a close shave. It is said that they are the sharpest blades in Westeros. <laughs> Indeed they are, so go check those guys out. Uh, but yeah, hell of a week, Matt, huh? Yeah, you know, we're finally kind of getting back into our rhythm here at uh, District Dogma. Bauer's been out on business as usual, <laughs> and I've been here to man the post, and it looks like I've pulled a Jon Snow and left my watch for a little bit, so I apologize to all of our listeners out there for the little bit of delay that we had this week in getting everything out to you. Oh, all good, all good. Yeah, I was north of the wall for arranging, but I made it back, unlike Benjen. Yeah, and uh, so hopefully we didn't have any hard home type events that happen while you're north of the wall <laughs> no nothing that crazy i promise well good deal well there's a lot going on back here in game of thrones um so i guess we should might as well just dive on into it Let's uh, do we it. start out at castle we start out at castle black and the opening scene or the, the opening frame is long claw and I remember sitting here looking at this thinking, like, did John really just give up his only <laughs> weapon against the White Walkers to Ed? Which, you know, if he had to give it to somebody, I guess that's fine. Yeah. But we realized that he didn't give it up, and he's actually packing his things to GTFO. Yeah, he's ready to peace out. Uh, after his little, you know, his exit last time after the dramatic hanging. He, uh, I yeah. guess he's made up his mind, and I, li- I like what he says here about, I'm going to get warm. Exactly. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that's really like being in Iceland for the past couple of years. Yeah. That's got to suck, it right? It never ends. And it's not just me, right? Oh, no, I'm and with it's you not on like this. They're, it's not like they're at Breckenridge going skiing every other weekend either. <laughs> I mean, it's just like hardcore camping. Yeah. And fighting people. When you for would argue, years. you would argue still that you know it's kind of primitive clothing, you know, that they're dealing with. Yeah, there's no North Face no. <laughs> up there. There is not. So, anyway, we get this dialogue between Ed and John, and I guess this is really where you can kind of see both sides of the story. Uh, from one side. Obviously, we're on Team John, where it's like, yeah, these guys just stabbed me. They're supposed to be my brothers. I can't trust anybody up here anymore. I'm getting the heck out. Yeah. But then also, you see Ed talking. He's like, you know what's coming. And, I mean, the, the, the wall is the first line of defense, and the Night's Watch mans the wall against the very real threat of the White Walkers that John's, you know, he, he knows they're coming. He does. Um I, I think this goes back to, we talked about whenever John walked through the row of people and he kind of zeroes in on Ed, but then he leaves him with his pelt and, you know, possibly sword, you know, so to speak, uh, even though it's kind of, he's kind of just like packing up, uh, but they make it seem like it. Anyway, point yeah. being, I think John, 
John is conflicted because he got killed. He doesn't know what to do next. He doesn't clearly want to be here anymore. Um, but it's interesting because this is a great segue for a guest that shows up and kind of gives him his new mission, so to speak. Absolutely. And so clearly from the preview scenes that we get uh, after the show every week, we knew that Sansa and Brienne would make it to the wall or to the Castle Black. We just didn't know if it would be in time to catch John, and it was. So this is the first time since we've seen Bran and Rickon that two Starks have been together in the show before. Yeah, after all the events, because remember, even when uh, remember when John and Bran were technically in the same location, but John was unaware of it. Yeah. Yeah, so you can't even count that. So, yeah, this is... Yeah. They're together. So, and one thing I really liked about this whole dynamic between Sansa and Jon is that in the books, it's very clear that Sansa does not see Jon as an equal, and she's really mean to him, and I was really hoping that the show would at least portray that in some way, shape, or form, and they did. So, shout out to the Double D's... Yeah. You stayed true to the books on one thing, at least, I suppose. <laughs> People will be okay with that. But yeah, huge redemption arc here for Sansa. And I know this all kind of takes place throughout the, the episode, but, uh, you know, they really have a bonding moment. Uh, I thought this was a great scene. A lot of emotion, obviously. And then Sansa kind of peels back some layers, and she's like, you know, I was kind of an a-hole, you know, back in the day yeah. when we were all together. And, you know, I need you to forgive me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I thought that was interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, you see them actually being brother and sister. They are very much equals as to where in their previous meetings and the way they grew up, it was very much Sansa was a trueborn. Yeah. And John was a bastard throughout all this. Well, I think this is, and, you know, that age old, uh, you don't realize what you have till it's gone. Exactly. So I'll make a comment, then I have a question for you. So Sure. I realize, did Podrick even say a word in this episode? No. He was in, I, I, I thought that was the weirdest thing ever. And I have a soft spot for Pod. Oh yeah, uh, I think he's great. But I think he's a great character. But I just noticed, I was like, are they going to let that kid talk in the least bit? So... I just thought that was funny, but but my question was is that do you think this reunion is it bigger for Sansa or John? Ooh, good question. Um I actually think it's bigger for Sansa for a couple reasons. Um Yep. Number 1, I understand that they're all kind of isolated in their own right, but think about where Sansa has come from. She has literally been able to trust no one. At least John had a couple people even though he ended up getting stabbed to death. Uh, mm-hmm. Sansa's been through the ringer. Um, I do think also that she's not as naive as she used to be, which they're really, really trying to show us this season. And she need. I know she indicates in the episode that she will move forward if John wouldn't have agreed to go with her and take back Winterfell. Um, but this is a means to an end for her as well. But I do think yeah. she's coming into it with a with a renewed like spirit, you know, like I, I really want to do, um, you know, what John does, but if we disagree, I've got to do my own thing as well. 
Exactly, and that, that was my thought as well. And so now we see each episode Sansa's army and backing kind of growing, and now she doesn't just have Jon Snow, but she also has Melisandre and Davos, and uh, eventually I think that you know all, all it takes is a little ripple in the the great ocean to, you know to make a mighty wave if you you want to say it like that sure and as i've said before we just keep seeing a little bit more progression into the Sansa redemption arc yeah i mean and, she's really come a long way yeah and i'm really excited to see where where she goes but one thing i wish they would have shown on screen at castle black in this first scene is john explaining to sansa how like his resurrection essentially yeah. and you know you, you never see that it i don't feel like if you say oh yeah so i was stabbed i died and they brought me back to life i don't feel like that's you know a passive conversation piece and uh, i would have just liked to seen how sansa would have reacted to that because i mean you can't deny that john is alive Correct. But it's also pretty hard to, to think that he died. Just I, I wish that was something that we would have seen on screen. Well, yeah, and it was only like days before. You know, like maybe two to three days, if that. Uh-huh. You know, like, uh, yeah, I think I think it's left, that, uh, left up to the audience to say, like, they had spent a couple hours together, and then, you know, we're just seeing the end of the convo. Yeah, which was really great. And then we get this little dialogue between Davos, Melisandre, and Brienne. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I can think of is how pissed Davos is going to be. And I'm curious at how he's going to react whenever he finds out that Stannis and Melisandre burn Shireen. Yep. They're still, so you know, they're still kind of holding it from him. You know, Brienne had every... Op- of course, Brienne wasn't there for the burning. Yeah, she's, she didn't know that. Yeah, and exactly. And she's she's kind of answering one one question uh, that she... You know, she thinks she's providing an adequate answer for, is what I'm trying to say. But Davos is like, uh, well, something's still not adding up. And, you know, Melisandre stays silent. But mm-hmm. my, I have a question for you on this. I mean, do you think Brienne is going to take any action against either of them? Because you know how she is. Yeah. If she does, I'll not be very happy with that. I already kind of have... I, I don't know why. It's something about her character that just kind of irks me. Yeah. To to a point. And I think that she's very narrow-minded. And... So at this point, she wanted revenge on Stannis. She's gotten that. Yeah, Rinley's death is avenged, and everything else. Yeah. So I don't know what she would gain besides personal gain from getting revenge, because because at this point it's just on Melisandre. But I think that would be a serious waste of a resource for a very selfish reason for Brienne to do that. But I don't put it past her character and her sense of duty for something like that to play out. Yeah. No, I think I think the point's well taken. I mean, I would have. I, my thought, my thought is very similar. Uh, I do think, though, that she she lets it get to her. You know, it's past the point of practicality. She's just yeah. she's like blindly following, like you said, her sense of duty. Um, but I I'm not sure. Uh, just to elaborate a little bit, I, I don't think she would do anything to either of them. But I would not be surprised if Davos tried to uh, take out Mel. <laughs> 
Yeah, once he finds but, out but see, what happened. I would be surprised just because he knows what she's capable of. But they're already... I mean, I think it's kind of like a, a mutual respect at this point to where Mel respects what Davos is doing, that he's very loyal. And yeah. Davos respects Melisandre's abilities. Not saying she's a great person by any means because he's seen all kind of messed up stuff that she's done. Mm-hmm. And I think that will push him over the edge, but I don't think he's going to do anything as drastic as kill her yeah, or anything from that point. And maybe he doesn't. I think that would actually, even though I like Davos, I think that would be a cop-out. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. Even though Melisandre can be very hot and cold, literally and figuratively, uh, she herself has come a long way. One thing I want to touch on before we move on, Melisandre right here, to me, I still can't figure out why she's acting the way she is. She just brought this dude back from the grave, and you think she'd be, like, running through the courtyard. I mean, yeah, she obviously has abilities that nobody knew she had. But also, she's a very mellow person. And by that, I mean, like, she... she, her highs are very are not very high, and her lows aren't very low. Yeah, she kind of stays in this state of melancholy almost, <laughs> and she's very cryptic. And I think it's because she's old. Obviously, we know that. I mean, think about your grandmother. She never gets really, really excited and animated That's about true. stuff, but she also doesn't get very upset about things either. She's seen too much. She knows too much, and nothing surprises her at this point. I uh, know. I think that's a very good assessment of the situation. Yeah. So then we move on to the Eerie, where Lord Royce has been tasked with literally the impossible task of trying to make Sweet Robin not only a decent man, but a decent character to us. (laughs) And I think that's just, it's never going to happen. I'm with you. It's never going to happen. This kid's clearly got issues. I mean, God, look at who his mom was. Uh... Yeah, exactly. But yeah, Lord Royce though is kind of pigeonholed here. You know, Baelish is back. Yeah, and so Littlefinger is finally off of his wherever. I guess he he was on a sabbatical at some point, (laughs) doing some recon somewhere. And I mean, this is the first time we see him in this season. And obviously, you know, he's been up to something. Yeah, no good. My real question. Yeah, well, my real question is, do you think that he knew what Ramsay was whenever he intended to marry, or whenever he did marry Sansa off to him? Well, okay, a couple things. Are you asking me, like, if he he knew, like, how Ramsay was and how he was going to treat her and what he was going to be about? Yeah, j- just that her yeah. outcome would be as bad as it was. Well, I will say, though, that... Maybe he always had faith that Sansa was strong enough to escape or be done with them. But I don't think he could have planned for that. Because, okay, as I'm understanding it, Baelish shows back up and is cornering Royce into getting the other, you know, sub-houses of House Aaron to fight on basically, you know, Robin slash Baelish's behalf. For Sansa. Yeah. But that's a lot of, like, coincidence. You know, now, he well, maybe his play, though, was to come back, based on whatever happened, 
or he found out what happened that she's that she escaped and now this is like a plan b to take out the boltons because once they do sansa gets installed but i don't know if she's going to be forgiving of baelish no and we'll actually talk a little bit more about the dynamic between them two in our uh, episode five preview podcast that we're going to be doing a little bit later this week but I find that Littlefinger, while he tries to be so proactive and try to manipulate people to go where he wants him to, he also finds himself being very reactive. And he makes you know smart plays throughout all of this, obviously, for the position that he's in. But, but at some point, I think that he had to have known that something bad was going to happen to Sansa. Oh, That's yeah. just my gut feeling on it. Well, so I, I agree with that portion of his like thought process, but I don't think he could have anticipated the sequence of events. I mean, think about all the variables, you know, with yeah. Reek slash Theon, with Ramsay intervening and killing his father, all that stuff. I don't really think anybody could have predicted it, at least in this order. Yeah, well, that's true. And, and also, like you were saying before... I, I think that he it's not a big prediction for him or you know it's not a it doesn't take a mastermind to kind of control sweet robin at this point. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with I me. Mean, I know what's wrong with the kid. It's he's been breastfeeding for so long and it's just all kinds of messed up. But it it doesn't seem like it'd be very hard for him to control and kind of steer his thought process, which it, he clearly does in this episode. Yep, you see it plain as day, and he is going to use the assets uh, in the veil to, you know, wh- whatever the next mission is, which I assume is to help Sansa when she needs it. Yeah, and so, you know, he, he gives him this falcon, and it's like, oh, you know, here's your birthday present. I miss your birthday. So here's this awesome present, and. The kid is just staring and all at it, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. Just, it, yeah, whatever you think, that's fine. So, I'm excited to see. So, so, so obviously, Littlefinger has control of the veil and the eerie and, and all that goes with it. So, it's about to get really interesting in the North, to say the least. Yep, I agree. Another and dynamic so there. I, I, would, I would just like to give an award out to Sweet Robin for being the most annoying character in the entire series, which is saying a lot for how many just terrible characters there are in this series. So yeah. you can give a, a little golf clap to, to Sweet Robin there. I like that. But also, but also one thing I wanted to note is that, and a bunch of the message boards on the internet picked up on this, is that Littlefinger gives this direct quote. It said, well, I guess it's time for the Knights of the Vale to enter the fray. Yep. And so you you kind of look at that is that an F R A Y or an F R E Y? Yeah, that's so. so I think that's really interesting though. I mean, we have not seen the phrase in forever outside of Walda, you know? So Yeah, but but we know that they should be in this season based on the trailers that came out. Yes. Yeah, I mean, they should be around uh you know, Lord knows what kind of havoc they're going to get involved in. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what capacity they're going to be around, but I think, and I'm assuming that they are going to be 
in at some point. Yeah. So we move on to Marine, where it is just as heated in politics as it is here in the United States right now. <laughs> so we, we have Tyrion meeting with the slavers of Yunkai and Asapor. And I know you had some real thoughts on this whole dynamic that they had going on. Okay, I'm out of sorts with this. So, on the one hand, I can't tell if Tyrion just had too much to drink before the meeting. But, like, I really... Okay, let let me preface here before everybody's, like, up in arms. I don't know if Tyrion is making this deal to end up breaking it. Like, he knows in advance he's going to break it. But I do not agree with this deal. And it's not because, like, I'm a purist of, like, Daenerys's like, wishes, even though I think slavery is wrong, and, but, you know, this is a mythical world. But anyway, point being, it's wrong. But he, he ma- Tyrion making this deal with these guys doesn't seem like the right path for what, what comes next. Now, you'd argue if you don't have an army... Daenerys is gone, you don't know if she's coming back or when, and you've got all these controversial events with the Sons of the Harpy, etc., etc., you know, maybe this is your option. Or maybe he thinks they're going to counter him with something, or they're not going to take the deal anyway, and that he's going to be able to then act upon them, you know, in these other cities. So I don't know. I don't know if you have any particular thoughts. I was just a little out of sorts with Tyrion on this. Yeah, well, I think that he is he made this decision and is making these terms to buy some time. So you kind of look at it as, you know, you have a very serious problem and you can either take immediate steps to try to alleviate the problem, which is the sons of the harpy who are cuz at the end of all of their you know, their their negotiations, you could say that Tyrion says, so you're going to stop funding the Sons of the Harpy. And the slavers are like, well, we don't fund the Sons of the Harpy. And it's like, well, we know you do, and that's going to stop. <laughs> so I, I, obviously you see that he doesn't care that much about slavery. It's a means to an end to get the Sons of the Harpy to stop. And so I, I think that in order for Daenerys to be an effective ruler and for her ideals and her, her kind of regime mm-hmm. or i guess everybody says her uh it's the, the daenerys doctrine that's that's a <laughs> word everybody likes to say yep. uh that, that in order for that to take effect into the region they have to have some stability in marine first and the only way you can have stability in marine is to stop the sons of the harpy right now it's a very immediate problem so i i think that he's kind of kicking the can down the road Oh, uh, maybe with so. The slavery, you know. With the with slavery issue, but he's trying to alleviate the problem right now. Yeah, And I obviously mean, that doesn't sit piece. well. Yeah, and, and so it obviously doesn't sit well with Masinde and Grey Worm. And, I mean, he just, like, throws Grey Worm under a freaking carpool line of buses <laughs> whenever he's talking to the freedmen yeah. in the room. He's like, I mean, hey, I made this deal, but my boy Grey Worm is hanging back there agreeing with everything I say, which obviously isn't true. Yeah, I mean, really puts him on the spot. Misande even quotes him from the previous conversation. Exactly. Uh, 
Yeah, we got to see a lot of where their heads are at since Daenerys has been gone. But, you know, you'd argue they're a little lost. You know, these are people that have always worked for others that didn't appreciate them. And, you know, you get exactly. Daenerys that comes in and, you know, really makes them part of her, like, family and inner circle. One more thing before we move on, though. I really didn't agree with Varys keeping his mouth shut. I was about to say the same thing yep. if you noticed that he did he he did not have a word to say nothing in this entire episode. Nothing at all. And I found that to be very out of character. But and, and I also find it out of character for Tyrion too, because obviously he respects and really kind of owes his life to Varys. Yeah. And he's trusting in what Varys has told him, and he is trusting that Daenerys really can be a great ruler. So I'll ask a two-part question. One, do you think that Varys had any idea that Tyrion was going to do this? And two, whenever Daenerys gets back, how do you think she's going to feel about Tyrion kind of making an appeasement with the slavers? Okay, this is awesome. So... I think Varys knew because I think Tyrion had to use him to get this meeting set up. I know that's like a weird nuanced thing in the background, but I think he needed him to get this far. Yeah, Um, I didn't think of that. And so I'm going to answer that for the first part. Second part, no, Daenerys is not going to be pleased at all. Um, But but it's another two-sided situation is Tyrion really trying this and would eventually agree if they agree or is he using this for some sort of leverage um yeah and I agree and obviously Tyrion's not a face value character he's he's smarter than that or at least you like to to think that he's smarter than that well that's why I just was so out of sorts with this scene I thought he was cocky like, this wasn't the cocky Tyrion from the small council where we're shipping your children off to various countries, and we know how that went. Uh, yeah. And you know what I mean? Like, it was more, it was, uh, it was a little more, like, uh, arrogant, so to speak, back then. This time, it felt, like, flippant. Like, I don't know, I just felt like the emotion was all off here. But maybe we're, there's more to find out. Yeah, that I mean, but but Tyrion also makes some good points, and you know, you can even look at it today, and so, so the masters want to keep their wealth and power. Yeah, they really don't care about anything else, and so Tyrion makes a really good points. Like, I mean, we have been slavery free in Westeros for hundreds of years, and I'm richer than yes. any one of y'all out there. Mm-hmm. Which it's kind of like so. I think he's playing to their emotions, and and he knows what they want. Yeah, and it's trying to make it. It's kind of like whenever you're negotiating or you know you're working a deal, you want to make the whoever you're negotiating against seem like they got the best deal they could and yeah. have the best outcome. Well, look, I think you're very so, keen to point that out because uh, I do think that was an important quote, and he is playing to their greed because that's all they live for. They know nothing else. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I found this to be an awkward exchange, and then all the explaining, and then talking to the freed people. Uh, let's just say Masande and Grey Worm are not pleased. Yeah, and 
I, I don't expect them to be. I mean, obviously they've seen you know, these really horrific things and have, have had these really horrific things done to them from the slavers. Yeah. So it's kind of like that that gap. And at some point the gap has to be filled. I just don't know if Tyrion will be able to do that since... And you even see this little bit of divide where Tyrion's like, well, I've been a slave. And Missende's like, yeah, for like two days. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Did you... So, uh, I know we both noticed, but... Did you notice that uh, it was seven years to end slavery? I did. I, I knew it was that, but I didn't think about that. Once again, <laughs> the seven comes back. So, so if for some reason George was an athlete, you think he would be number seven in everything? Everything. Every single thing. Yeah. So before we move on, I, I want to take this time just to appreciate everybody who has been uh, sticking with us and been listening to all these podcasts. Uh, we definitely appreciate your support, and we'd love to have you uh, hashtag Wardens of Westeros District Dogma on Twitter. Uh, please share on your Facebook pages. Send everybody to the SoundCloud page that you can. Uh, we have Bauer who's working on the back end to try to get us on iTunes, so it can be on everybody's smartphones. So I just wanted to give a big blurb and a shout-out to all of our listeners out there. Yeah, and I'll just echo what Matt said. We've really had a, a really good response from the first couple of episodes. Um, people have been very interested in what we have to say, so that's always nice to hear. Uh, but, yeah, we will be coming uh, on more platforms and hopefully get out there a little bit more. But we're always open to feedback, and you know we'll say that again later. But if there's ever any question or something you want us to cover, uh, you know there are ways to get in touch with us. But... Anyway, yeah, thanks everybody thus far. Yep, so we move on to Vase Dothrak, which I called half of this part right the last episode, uh, our recap, in that the dynamic duo of Dario and Jorah mm-hmm. are going to attempt to save the day. <laughs> and I guess I was wrong on the fact of they probably could have taken her out of the city. Yeah, I guess it's a little but, more complex. Yeah, but and I, I guess it, at that point, you know, we'll get into this a little bit later. But I, I really like the fact that Dario mentions the the riding of the dragon. I don't know if you, if you caught that little bit of dialogue that they had. Uh, no, I really didn't actually. Now that you say that, I, the dialogue uh, with them anyway, I thought was awkward, but and a little. I don't know, a little strange. But anyway, go ahead. Well, whenever Dario was talking about riding the dragon, he was obviously talking about his uh, oh, sexual encounters yeah, with yeah, yeah. Daenerys. I, I call, yeah, I know what you're talking about now. Sorry. Yeah, he was, it was very innuendo. And so, yeah, well, exactly, which made it really great. And I just, it's, it's, I feel so bad for Jorah because he's done, he's been with Daenerys since day one. And yet he didn't have the best intentions at first. But now, I mean, you can't say he's not a ride-or-die person at this point. Yeah. I think you'd be hard-pressed to say that at least. I agree. And, and so, you know, Dario's just kicking this guy when he's down. And he's saying, you know, I mean, I'm a young, good-looking guy, and I can't keep up with her. And you're old. So good luck with the love of your life, Jorah. And then just kind of keeps on walking, you know. It's 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 pretty uh, pretty hardcore, if I had to say. 
Yeah, a little pretentious here for Dario. Uh, you know, we go through the dialogue, and then he figures out Jorah's got grayscale. You yeah, know, in this whole is... sequence. But he seems totally cool with it. He's like, oh, okay, you got grayscale? I guess if it didn't touch me, I'm cool. Yeah, but I don't I'm know. I'm still going to hang around you this whole time. <laughs> I felt like he hesitated a little bit. Yeah, but then there's still kind of, you know, running around, like, ducking yeah. around corners around Dice Dothrak, Yeah, you know? I mean, they are. But I guess Dario is also one of those people, like, he's come from nothing kind of a deal. You know, he's probably a little yeah. more, dan- you know, lives on the dangerous side than most. But uh, Yeah, he's probably seen worse than, than that as well. But we also see Danny kind of making some, or I say some friends, really making a friend mm-hmm. within the Dolce Colleen. Um, and you can see that she, I don't even know the name of the girl that yeah, she befriends, but I, I don't know if they named her actually. Um, but, but you can see that she doesn't want to be there. She's been there for most of her life and it looks terrible. Apparently so, it smells terrible too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, which is fine. I mean, so <laughs> And so, you know, Danny, kind of much like Sansa, is back to square one, but all it takes is a couple of good allies, and you can make a lot happen, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Sure. Just try try to go in the sequence of the episode. Yeah, so they end up, you know, seeing her after they walk out, and, you know, Dario immediately is, like, ready to slice this girl's throat. You know, kind of a thing. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, Daenerys, it's another Daenerys, you know, moment. Like, you got to trust me. I've got a plan. Need, need your help to implement it. Yeah. And so th- that's where they leave us with, with that. And then we go into King's Landing, which is just a hot freaking mess. Lord help me. And Lord of Light, help me. Because yeah. I'm, I can't, Shyness I can't handle your, this anymore. With your presence. <laughs> It's really getting rough. Yeah. And and obviously for the people there, but for the viewers, and I want to go on and say this is what happens whenever you create a power vacuum and no matter how, how bad or, you know, obviously Joffrey wasn't a great king, mm-hmm. but whenever Ty, Tywin was there, when he was, when he was running the show, for the most part, it seemed like King's Landing was was running fairly efficiently. Yes. It is no and longer. obviously, <laughs> it is not. It, it is just a grab for power. And obviously, the Faith Militant have ended up grabbing the most. I mean, they have Marjorie in the cells. They have the heir to High Garden, who is probably the best, you know, pawn you can have in this game. Mm-hmm. Because that not only affects how the king is going to react, but also how the small council is going to react. And so we see Marjorie talking to the sparrow. Again. And yeah, and I will say from an acting perspective, this was a great monologue. And I actually kind of like this little bit of information about the high sparrow as to why he doesn't wear shoes. Mm-hmm. And, and all the stuff. And so, so we see that he was actually a pretty successful person. Yep. He was a cobbler, and, fancy cobbler. Yeah. And and then he just decided to uh, to give everything up. 
And don't you think that's like symbolic? He like didn't wear shoes anymore because yeah, he was a yeah, cobbler. Of course it was. <laughs> and you know, I, I just keep on waiting for there to be like a cutaway scene of like the high sparrow and the septus being like, "Oh, can you believe that she bought that story?" Like, of course I have shoes on. And then he puts on his toms and then walks around. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like this is, and I know it's not true, but I feel like this is just a big show that he's running. To kind of gain support of the people. Yeah, I mean, it's a prolonged campaign, you know, of, like, holding those accountable who have held us back for so long, you know? Yeah. The other thing is, like, they do try to demonstrate this a lot, but you have to realize there is a great divide between rich and poor. There's no middle class. Absolutely. And and even, you can tell, even whenever there are the middle class, like the High Sparrow apparently was. Yeah. That it, it's not even, you know, it's 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 few. There's it's few and two far polar between. Opposites, yeah, and yeah, it exactly. is polar opposite. And they have their, you know, it's like they're able to exist in their own like world. They're not really subject to the top or the bottom. Yeah, well, and it's kind of this this theory that is wealth really a zero sum game or. Can you collaboratively gain, you know, increase your wealth? Mm-hmm. And so, so for there to be a very rich class, there also has to be a very poor class. And, and I feel like that's just very exacerbated in King's Landing. Yeah, it is. It is for sure. And so, and so then obviously we see that uh, the Septa's book time, <laughs> her, her good night stories have obviously resonated fairly well with Marjorie. Yep. Whenever she starts quoting the seven-pointed star. Ah, the Book of the Stranger. Which, very fitting title, obviously. Yep. And, and so we see that Marjorie is finally permitted to see Loras. And it, it's kind of one of those things where the High Sparrow is still playing his hand close to his chest because to, to the outside person it's uh, it seems like oh you know Marjorie has finally made some decent progress in the faith and so now we're going to reward her to go see Loras and so when she goes and sees him she sees how broken he is and, and how he's not in a very good state and so then you kind of see what the high spirit was really playing to oh yeah I mean definitely trying to exploit both of their situations but Marjorie figures it out yeah. You know, she's like, this and, is ridiculous, and I know exactly what they're trying to get at. We've got to hold out. Yeah. And and you can see so much of Olena in Marjorie. Yes. Which is awesome, I think. And so she, she, she's kind of saying, hey, hey, bro, suck it up. Like, we can't let them have this one. Yeah, they better not. So, so do you think that they're going to break Loras? Um, if they don't in the series of whatever, like, is going to happen with a rescue or an intervention, uh, maybe they won't be able to have break him beforehand, but no, I really don't think so. I think this was, uh, I think this was just trying to show us what they're capable of and Marjorie, even though she doesn't really have any control, I think she's calling their bluff. Yeah. I can see that. And, you know, I guess it's kind of one of those where she's not in a position to do anything but hold out. That's the only thing that she can do. 
and she's obviously doing it very well, and she she knows, you know, that she has to stay mentally tough and kind of, you know, just ride out the storm, essentially. And so then we, we move on to Pycelle kind of talking to Tommen, and at this point, I just feel like Tommen is Play-Doh. And the only thing that resonates with him is the last thing that was said to him. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, it's been known in presidential, uh, not necessarily politics, but like presidents and, you know, leaders of countries, some of them always take the advice of the last person that talks to them about a particular issue. And I feel like that's, and I feel like that's exactly how Tommen is. Yeah. And, and so, for those of y'all that don't know, there's this really cool conspiracy out there that claims that the Maesters have their own agenda. And so, so if you don't know, the Maesters are set to serve the select houses that they are assigned to. Kind of like a Catholic priest has their own parishes yeah. that they're sent out to by, you know, obviously the higher-ups. Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing is that for Maesters. And you don't get to pick, obviously, where you go. And you serve the house that is running the seat. So back in Season 3, whenever Theon is in Winterfell and Maester Lewin is giving him advice, it's because he serves whoever is at you know that, that location at Winterfell. Yeah. The same thing with the Boltons and their Maester. And so there's this kind of conspiracy that the Maesters have their own agenda – and are kind of having some other things at play, which I think is really cool. And I would love for it to play out like that, but you can kind of see Pycelle even trying to make his little impressions on Tommen. Oh, yeah, he clearly has his own agenda. I mean, he's a very good actor. But, you know, he make he has very few friends. So, yeah. I, uh, if any at all. But, yeah, so I do think it's interesting he tries to... Uh, I don't know if you can necessarily call this a risk so to speak, because he wanted to be found. You could tell from his smug expression. Yeah. Well, and the thing with Pycelle was is that obviously he was in Cersei's back pocket yeah. for a majority of the series, and now you can kind of see him shifting to the points of power where now he's kind of aligning himself with Kevin. And one thing that's been kind of unresolved for me in the series is, I don't know if y'all remember back in, it's either seasons one or two, it's this scene of Pycelle, and he's in his room, mm-hmm. and he kind of hobbles like this old man, Yes. and then all of a sudden he jumps out of bed and kind of does these stretches after a girl comes in his room, and that's been very uh, unresolved for me. That's always in the back of my mind anytime I see him, so... I'm curious to see if we have any resolution with that, or Drew, if you can give me any insight. Obviously, I'm not a book reader, so if anybody else knows, yeah, I mean, I'd love to get you're that on, answer. You're on to to something. I, I don't think it's ever actually resolved, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, he's definitely putting on a show. I don't think he's as you know feeble, both in mind or body, as he kind of purports to be, uh, and he always portrays himself to be kind of decrepit. Uh, which I don't, he's clearly older, you know, people in this, you know, people can live, you know, older in this, uh, world, but it's less likely whether through conflict, disease, or just age, but he is definitely putting on a show and, um, 
it makes people like devalue him, which I think is what he's going for. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of laying low under the radar. Yeah, which is fine. It's so then Tommen, you know, Cersei kicks Pycelle out of the room, and then Tommen sits down with her, and it's kind of like having that monster-in-law for Marjorie. Like Cersei doesn't like her at all. Yeah, at all. Which is somewhat, which is somewhat warranted because clearly Marjorie only likes Tommen because he's the king. But Tommen says, "Oh well, you know, the, I had a very serious talk with the High Sparrow, and yeah, it's kind of like that Plato mentality where he said these things, and we have to respect them." <laughs> yeah, no, and, no and so, bloodshed. Exactly, and so he lets us go, or he lets us into the fact that. Marjorie's gonna potentially have this walk of atonement, much like Cersei had. Yeah, which cues us up to the most ridiculous and ineffective small council I've ever seen in the history of the Seven Kingdoms. It's terrible. Uh, Matt, I am so, like, out of sorts. I know I said that earlier about Tyrion, but, like, this is just... Okay, so let's get into it. So we go to... You know, uh, Cersei shows up again to the small council meeting, and Kevin and uh, Lady Olena are sitting there. Yeah. And so, my question for Dan and Dave on this particular scene is, why are we setting the same scenario up again? So, you know, we had the big dramatic Jamie cersei entrance on the last round, and they all just got up and left. Like a bunch of school yeah. kids. You know, you can't sit at our table. We wear pink on <laughs> yeah, Wednesdays. <exactly>. And <laughs> and now, now we're back. And yes, there is different evidence presented, which is Cersei telling Lady Olena that Marjorie's going to be, you know, you know, dragged through the streets. Um, but I question the decision here. Um, there's no love lost between Kevin and uh, Jamie and Cersei. Now, I just want to point out, because some people don't know, uh, Kevin is their uncle. So they've got history. And Lancel, who used to be involved with Cersei and is now part of the faith, is Kevin's son. Just to clarify mm-hmm. that for everybody. But there's... I just... I felt this was an odd exchange, and now they're, like, all rallying together. And I know this was one of your points that we had talked about even before, you know, today... That, you know, it's Tyrell-Lannister alliance, you know, loose alliance. Yeah. Well, well f- f- in my opinion on this is, is that it's kind of like their well-beings rely on each other. Through yeah. the fact that, that, that Marjorie is only powerful, so, as Tommen is powerful. And so, if something happens with either one of those two, then both houses kind of crumble. It's like, yeah. you know, posting up two playing cards and, and they lean on each other. And if one falls, and the other one's going to fall on top of it. But yeah, absolutely. The only thing that, or the main thing that screams out to me with this small council meeting is that Kevin is absolutely useless. Correct. It's, it's, it's like, well, the king told me not to do this. Well, the king's also a 13-year-old boy who has no decision-making Wherewith, doesn't have the wherewithal to make any good decisions. And at some point, the hand of the king is supposed to say, okay, well, we still have to run. Like, you know, the city and the, the seven kingdoms still have to operate. 
Yeah, which is and something it, I've it brought up before. Useless. Yeah, like yeah. they're not operating. Um. Yeah, it's 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 almost hysterical at this point. Yeah, but you are you're on point about the power vacuum. Kevin doesn't know how to fill the shoes. They're in an awkward place because of the faith, and Tommen is so conflicted because Marjorie is still in custody. He refuses to make any decisions, but at the same time, he's being constantly manipulated to both extremes. Because think about yeah. it. Remember Jamie in the in the uh, in the sept. He's mm-hmm. like, you know, we got stuff to do, man. You know, like let me help you. And then Cersei, he asks her for help. He's telling Kevin, though, not to do anything. And, you know, Pycelle's trying to whisper in his ear, too. Yeah. And I guess that comes to the territories being king, which he's really not qualified. I think he's a better king than Joffrey was, but he's really not even qualified to rule. And so so one last thing I want to, I want to say about this yeah. is, what do you see is the end game between Cersei and Marjorie? Because... Obviously, there's a lot of bad blood there, and there's been bad blood since the Mar- since Marjorie was introduced. Yeah. Well, so what do you see? How, how do you see that playing out? Okay. Well, clearly, and we'll touch on this in the preview, but I, you know, we're building towards some sort of an armed conflict in the capital. Um, the faith militant, their like time is coming to an end uh, because I think that's the logical progression. But if Marjorie comes out unscathed. Cersei, you know, has to keep trying to assert herself in these events. I do think it depends on what happens to Marjorie on where Tommen weighs in on this and if he actually decides to continue supporting um, his mother and her ideas. But ultimately, I think the Tyrells become more powerful out of this exchange because they're pretty much the only reason they're going to get freed, meaning Loris and Marjorie. So I think yeah. Marjorie comes out with the upper hand. I don't know if that's a non-answer, but that's all I really like have formulated thus far on where this kind of stands. Yeah, which is probably what Dan and Dave want us to be thinking right now. Yeah. So we move on to Pike, and we see that Theon goes and visits Yara. And, I mean... I'll be damned if she doesn't walk, talk, act just like her father did <laughs> whenever Theon came home to him the first time. Yep. Which alienated him, you know, and made him a certain way. And I think you're exactly right. A, that is a very key comparison. Uh, and they, the Ironborn have this, like, ability to, like, strip people down to their core which your core over there should be iron. And they just, yeah. they, they take away everything and they just want unabridged, like see in your soul and hear you answer directly about whatever the situation is. Yeah. And so the thing with Theon is that he's a different person than their last encounter that him and Yara had whenever she was trying to save him. Uh, was it at Moat Kalen or the Dreadford? Whatever, uh, I think Moat Kalen. That's what I thought as well. And so, and so um, obviously, he's a different person now. He's kind of made these decisions on his own. He's no longer Reek. He is now Theon. And so, 
when he comes back, Yar, I guess Yar sees him as this threat now that Balon's away and saying, oh, you just want to come back to rule. Yep. And I don't think anybody believes that Theon is capable of ruling the Iron Islands. No. I mean, I don't think he could rule my bathroom. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he just, point well taken, like, he he can't, do, he's not going to be able to do anything, especially a leadership position. Exactly. And so here, and I'm just going to go ahead and give a spoiler alert, potentially, for yep. how uh, the king, the king's mood is going to play out. So if you don't want to know anything, and we could very well be wrong about this, uh, you may want to turn the volume down and come back in about 30 seconds to a minute. So I'm going to ask you real quick, do you think the outcome of the king's moot is going to be the same in the show as it is in the books? I do think it's the same because of who they've introduced. And so, spoiler, uh, it would be Euron, um, who's been introduced in the show and who killed his brother. Um, But I think it ends up being the same. What I do want to say, and I know we spoke about this earlier, uh, if it ends up being Euron... The difference between the books and the show is that in the books, Theon slash Reek at the time is not present for the events of the King's Moot, so you don't have this conflict of the line of succession. Now, to be clear, the King's Moot is a selection, but because Theon was not present, I think it kind of goes against some of their rules, and that it could be called into question if he were to ever to surface. Yeah, and the only thing I'll say about it is that I'm curious because Dan and Dave have kind of been playing up this uh, you know, feminine power, and, and not to discredit anything about that. Yeah. It's just that, that there, there could potentially be some deviations from the books because obviously the books are the books and the show is the show. And I think that people really need to have that point pressed home because, and they're obviously going to constantly be compared against one another. But. I'm just curious, and I, th- I would love to see just the internet melt that would go down oh, yeah. if for some reason Yara won the King's Moot. Yeah, but I do think it would change the dynamic of the Iron Islands quite a bit. And I want to bring this up just briefly. I had somebody point out to me today, you know, we see so many different families and cultures and aspects of the entire world that George has created, but at some point you sometimes ask yourself, like, at like what is the purpose of some of them and that is how I've always been with the Greyjoys I can't figure out what their actual purpose is in the whole grand scheme yeah I feel like they're just kind of like the muscle and it's yeah it's kind of like those people who just live on the outskirts of town yeah and they fight amongst one another and they're really rough folks <laughs> And, you know, if you have to go and fight somebody, they're always down for a good fight. But you never know whenever they're going to punch you in the back of the head type thing. Yes. That's kind of the only way. I, they're kind of like, I don't want to use it, but like wild dogs. And they're going to fight amongst themselves. And if you can channel them, then I, I guess they're a pretty effective yeah. people. Yeah, use them to your advantage. No, I know what you're saying. No offense, no offense to all my ironborn out there. <laughs> so... Anyway, then we uh, we move on to Winterfell, and a lot of setup is going on here. Oh yeah, um, they bring Asha into Ramsay, and 
you know this isn't going to play out well. No, not at all. The, 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 the only thing you don't know, or, or one thing you do know, excuse me, is that Asha can take care of herself. I mean, she, she is a wildling. They kind of don't have any rules. The only rules are that there are no rules, I suppose, north of the wall. Mm-hmm. And she grew up in that environment. The only problem is, is that Ramsey knows what's up because of her previous interactions with Fiat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, okay, clearly, you know, she comes in. She thinks she's going to end up being able to stab Ramsey. She ends up taking a dagger to the jugular, and that's that's it for Asha. Um, I just, I thought this was awkward. I thought it was a little senseless, even though Ramsey is the worst of the worst. Um, and he was trying to get her to say, like, why she has value. And what is the purpose, even though, you know, she was willing to, you know, try to kill him at every turn. I just thought this was an odd, yeah. odd scene. I really did. Well, I thought it was weirdly placed. And so the real question behind all this, and what I think that D&D are trying to set up maybe in an inverted way, is the Grand Northern Conspiracy, which we've talked about before. Yep. And I, I, I've been trying to get stuff together for a bonus uh, podcast. It's just there's so much, yeah. there's so many intricacies that go on here. And so, so the real question is, is that where do the Umbers really lie? Because the idea behind the Grand Northern Conspiracy is, is that there are all these houses that are secretly trying to put a Stark back into Winterfell. Yes. And if if that does serve to be true, then why in the world? Would the Umbers, who are naturally and who have historically been very strong Northern Stark supporters, why in the world they would put the last known living heir of Ned in very serious harm with all of the uh, with, with the Boltons? Yeah, with the Boltons. Yeah. I mean. I don't know what the play is here other than they think they're pretty smart and they they know that Ramsey isn't actually going to kill Rickon. Uh Asha's obviously disposable, but um but 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 can you effectively make that assessment because no. the guy is obviously a loose cannon. So is this I kind of see this as a miscalculation by the Umbers yeah. thinking that oh well we have this wildling girl who's taking care of him for this long. Mhm. Well, two things you know, are true, Matt. This is how I look at it, if you're asking. I mean, the the Umbers are making one of two decisions. But, like, what does Rickon being present in Winterfell get you? You know what I mean? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, exactly. But maybe it lets them in the door, so to speak. Like, if there is a battle coming, let's say the Umbers rally with them and then they turn on them. You know what I mean? That's kind of an upper hand. Um, yeah, I suppose. But but at this point, they they know that John is potentially at the you know, that he's Lord Commander now. Yes. They don't know where Rickon is. They, they really don't know where Sansa is. I mean, and, and so if they really are having the North's best interests, I just don't. I mean. It's a hell of a gamble, to say the least. That, and that's all I'm going to say about it, really. Yeah. That's all we know at this point. Yeah. And, and that's about it. We also don't know really where the Karstarks stand, even though they're peeved yeah. at Rob from, you know, years past. Um, 
if there is a Grand Northern conspiracy, I'm sure they're going to explain their motives at some point. But yeah, having Rick on there doesn't... I, re I really don't think it's a bonus for anybody, and yeah, it does put him in harm's way. Exactly. And so then we move on up a little bit north to the wall, and Drew, I did not think that the pink letter was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it ended up um, showing up. So, for those of y'all who don't know, in the books, the pink letter actually happens before Jon Snow is stabbed by the Night's Watch. Yeah. And the reason that he is murdered by Thorne and all of them is that he is planning on leading a raid to try to take back Winterfell from Ramsay. Yes. And so, they saw that as him breaking his vows, I'll hold no lands. That's why they murdered him in the books. So since they already went to that point in the show, I, I assume, okay, well, we're not going to get that. But we do. And so w what are your reactions on the pink letter? Well, reaction is, I'm glad it has occurred. Yes, it's very different in construction. Um, because instead of talking about... So just to give a little bit of backstory, the pink letter in the books is really all about Stannis and the storylines that John kind of helps move along with. Uh, this is going to confuse a lot of people, and I, I don't. We don't really have a whole ton of time to explain it, but technically, still in the books, Mance Raider is alive. Um, there's a glamoring situation with him and another character that Melisandre kind of works out, but he has gone to Winterfell and is intercepted by Ramsay. But the point is, the letter in the book is all about Stannis and Melisandre and a lot of the things that had been going on prior to you know his eventual stabbing. Um, so when we got this, and it's all about Sansa, I think that this I thought this was actually a clever way to carry it out because Sansa's not present in the same type of storyline uh, in the books. She's in a completely different situation, and so I think this was a nice tie-in. But it also augments where we're going next. Yeah, um, and I think this is a more effective way of storytelling because it holds the character of John together better in the show than it does in the books. I think I think it kind of stays more true yeah. to 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 John. Um, but I've seen tons of people trying to, to, to figure out who actually sent the letter. Yeah, that is in conflict. And, 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 it, and it's obviously explicitly clear in the show. And in the books, there's a whole lot of ambiguity about it. But people are even trying to say, oh, well, Littlefinger sent it in the show. <laughs> and I think at some point, people have to stop making these crackpot theories and these random assumptions and just start taking things at face value because... Not everything can be a conspiracy, and not everything can have these off angles to it that people like to come up with. Yeah, and just for the I, fun I, of it. I, yeah, and at some point, logical storytelling has to overtake the shock factor that you get. Because without the logical storytelling and without the logical arcs and the mythology of the plot, you don't get these big shock moments like John being killed, like the Red Wedding, like Ned being beheaded. Without these 
you know, th- these progressive logical storylines. Yeah. And so it really irks me whenever people want to make these crackpot ideas <laughs> or say, oh, well, really, the car Starks sent the Bolton banner up there and it's just someone in disguise that they took. It's like, no, guys, just take it at face value. Stop trying to be trendy about it and make up <laughs> these random things and have some logical sense and make some decent statements. Gosh darn it. Boom, in rant. <laughs> Apologies to everybody. Oh, man. No, I agree. People are grasping at straws because there's really not too many theories left, you know? No. And, and so, but the thing is that these books have been out. The last book was written five years ago. Mm-hmm. So, everything theoretically, I mean, there may be one thing that somebody didn't think of until they just read the books, like two weeks ago. But for the most part, anything that's fairly clear or that's even hinted at in the books is going to be exposed at this point. And so just a shout out to everybody who's listening out there. I know there's a bunch of other podcasts, and I don't mean to call them out, but I kind of do. And all these random people on Reddit and all these other forums stop giving these BS arguments and these BS theories because it's sucking out my brain cells. <laughs> and that's the end of that. It's been a long time coming. It's been a long time so, coming. It has been. And so in the pink letter, we get these demands by Ramsey. And he threatens Rickon and saying that, you know, your brother is in my dungeon. He lets them know that he killed his dire wolf, yep. which is just like family to the Starks. They have a very special bond. Then he asked John, oh, well, just send back Sansa, who is your sister, and we're all cool. Like, he's going to go for that. Yeah. And then, I th- and then I think the biggest miscalculation that he makes is he threatens the wildlings. Because, I mean, it, they're like the people who are just the bar who are like, hey, man, we're just here to try to have a good time. We just want to relax a little bit. Yeah. We're tired of fighting everybody. And then somebody goes and throws a wayward punch and hits one of them. And then you bring everybody into it. So I think that's the biggest miscalculation that Ramsey makes in this letter. A lot of hubris there. Yeah, because, I mean, so if you threaten Sansa to John, obviously it's very personal for him. But outside of those two, it doesn't really mean much. That's true. But you go and threaten the wildlings, that's... 2,000 people now who can rally against you and who are going to. Oh, yeah. They don't have any so, love lost for the Boltons. Absolutely not. It, but they have a lot of love for Jon Snow. Well, yeah. I mean, he's and done so a lot like, So now not only do you threaten them, but you give them a reason to follow the guy who you're trying to fight. It's like, come on, man. Yep. No, I'm with you. Which I... I yeah. So, so how do you see this kind of northern dynamic playing out. Yeah, so this is kind of, we're getting to the crescendo, so to speak. So Sansa has gotten John to sign on. This was kind of the last piece of rationale that he needed to really, like, fully consolidate and say, you know, I'm willing to keep fighting because of these reasons. Rickon being one, Sansa being another, uh, the Wildlings, and kind of just sticking it to the Boltons and, you know, reconsolidating uh, the North. Now, I do think that this, the Wildlings complicate their path 
I know they're going to eventually figure it out, but I think it does complicate their path in rallying some of the northern houses. But this will set them on the path of basically going on the uh, what I call the roundup tour. So they'll they'll probably visit a couple of families and get their support and eventually march uh, to Winterfell. Yeah, and so when you look at it at, at face value, I mean, as far as the, the big houses of the north, I mean, we're set to believe that the Karstarks and the Umbers, along with the Boltons, are kind of aligning together. Yep. And so, I mean, that, that's three of the major houses in the north. It's going to take some serious recruiting. <laughs> and uh, if Jon Snow can pull this off, I'd love to have him come down and recruit for uh, LSU football <laughs> at some point. Well, we always have the number one but, recruiting uh, class, but we can't make them do anything. Well, exactly. But uh, I'm just excited to see where this goes. And at this point in the show, really, if if it's a 60-minute episode, if 45 minutes of it is in the north, I'm cool with that. I'm really excited to see how all this plays out. Yeah. And it's only going to get more interesting. Yeah, this is definitely like a long-time-coming kind of redemption story for the Starks. Yeah, but I, and I think that's what the whole series is really about, which is good. I mean, obviously that there has to be some resolution because, it, and I wouldn't put it past George at some point to be like, oh, and that's the end. Oh yeah, and we're like, we're like, oh, well, what, what happened? We need to know something. He's like, no, you don't. You don't need to know anything. <laughs> you know nothing. So, ex- exactly. So, we leave the north and go across the narrow sea to Vase Dothrak. Yeah. And one of my biggest things about this scene or, is so, so clearly you can't have weapons inside and you can't spill blood, in, blood inside of Vase Dothraki. Mm-hmm. That's kind of one of the Dothraki uh, customs. But at what point, whenever you have all of your highest meeting individuals, do you not have at least a little bit of outside security? <laughs> Well, you know, they think that they're uh, unbeatable. You know they have a lot of, like, arrogance in their combat abilities. Absolutely. But don't you think that's funny that, like, the turnover in calls is, like, very rapid? So you got to think, we're doing something wrong. I mean, exactly. It's (laughs) There needs to be some serious revamp in security details. I agree. For the Dothraki calls. But so we get this convening of, uh, I guess it's Carl Moro. Yeah, yep. I think his name in this. And uh, and he's kind of convening all of the leaders of his Kalasar together. And at first it starts out, it's like, okay, well, what are they going to do with Daenerys? And so they bring her in, and then she just starts kind of verbally Ooh. slapping everybody around the room. Oh, yeah, she's not having it. And so we kind of see her reverting back to the end of season one where she finally kind of comes into her own a little bit and is really kind of seizing the moment. But I will say this Daenerys is one who has a little bit of thinking and forethought. Obviously, um, she has her friends go and kind of prep the room for what's about to happen. Yeah. This was, I thought this was a very, like, interesting way for this to go down. But also, like, 
just think about like the simplicity of it. They had to do a little bit of prep, but like the simplicity of how she's about to just whip some butt and take over. Yeah. And obviously the big question at the end of this is, is Daenerys immune to fire? And I know George has gone on the record in saying that in the end of episode or season one, yeah. that it was just like this blood mat or this this magic that was surrounding the event that made her not immune or immune to fire at that one specific instance, but she's still not totally immune to fire. But at this point, I mean, it's safe to say that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think for all intents and purposes of the show that Daenerys is immune uh, to heat and fire to, I mean, based on the events we've seen, to a large degree. Uh, yeah, and and we know that in season one she says after Viserys was killed by the, the golden crown that, yep. oh, well, he was no true dragon. A dragon can't be killed by fire. Yeah. So maybe that was maybe that was Dan and Dave kind of hinting at us like, hey, you know, it it's gonna play out later, so pay attention, guys. Yeah, I mean, we've seen. I mean, there are a couple of instances, even in her one of her first scenes where she's taking that bath, and they're like, "Yo, the water is like really hot. You've got to wait like twenty minutes." She goes <laughs> right in and nothing, like no discomfort yeah. whatsoever. And I just love the way this played out because, you know, all those after she goes and insults, you know, these very arrogant men. Obviously, they get all rowdy yeah. and are like, "Oh, really? You're going to come in here and insult us?" <laughs> and then all she does is just go and it kind of grab on to that the brazier, that uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, the, the the fire pit, and she's like, "All right, I'm just going to give y'all a chance to kind of chill out," <laughs> and they didn't listen, so. But I, I know you had some serious thoughts on uh, on what was going down here. Yeah, so, okay, I really, really liked this. Um, I thought this was a very, uh, just like, boom, stick it to the man kind of way to take out all these calls and blood riders and, you know, top people. Um, but this is really a full circle event for Daenerys, and I think it's something we have been looking for for quite some time. Um, I'm not, I've been talking about this with a couple people to kind of clarify my ideas on this. I'm not sure what this really means for Daenerys's eventual, you know, build up in the story, because she's been doing so much back and forth um, with being up and down in terms of her power and influence. Um, so I'm not sure how she's going to use this to her advantage just quite yet. Um, other than like restoring order to the cities she had already liberated. Uh, but we are finally moving in a direction, and this is a question I have asked a thousand times. Why did the Dothraki matter? And we just got our answer. Exactly. And so now, I mean, she has the entire horde of the Dothraki, and the whole reason that they go to face Dothraki is to figure out what cities they are going to, you, you know, attack and yep. and try to conquer, and so this is setting up very nicely because I don't know if any if our, our listeners out there know, but 
the the way the Dothraki operate are is that they go obviously they have a very serious reputation and they go to these big cities and say okay we're gonna ransack your city because we're a bunch of badasses but if you give us this certain amount of tribute or whatever we'll let y'all be yep and so i'm curious to to see if that plays out that may be how daenerys gets her ships you know yeah maybe it is she uses a bargaining chip and I also wouldn't be surprised to see this being how she ends slavery. You know, when you, it's one thing to come knocking with three dragons. Yeah. Because it's very hard to, to, to maintain order with just three dragons flying around. But to come knocking with the entire Dothraki horde at your door and say, hey, it's time to end some slavery here, <laughs> I think some people are going to listen. At that point, so I'm curious if that's how she kind of plays her hand to this. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're spot on with how this is going to go. Um, I do think she, you know, she's going to use it to her advantage, both politically and militarily. Um, but you know, just this was a, a heck of a scene. I heard a couple of comments from people we know and so a couple of uh, listeners. That the uh, the CGI fire kind of made it look a little strange, like a little bit of yeah. like Fantastic Four, like flame on. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I thought this was really beautifully done. Um, we, you know, it's another one of those. I really think Daenerys has had the most kind of badass moments, you know, with just kind of coming in you know, kind of coming into her element more and more. And this was just another one of those. I thought it was really, uh, really uh, executed well. And the last thing I wanted to say is, uh, you know, Jorah and Dario kind of coming up, you know, after everybody uh, had bowed or knelt. And, uh, you know, they eventually doing it with Dario being the last one, which is really an interesting kind of, uh, you know, perception of this. You know, he's... He knows her probably better than anybody at this point, and more mm-hmm. intimately, obviously. And you know, yeah. he finds himself a little conflicted. Like, do I have to kneel? Question mark. <laughs> yeah, well, and and he he prides himself on not kneeling to anybody, yeah. or you know. And so, obviously, the big story around this is is not just from a Game of Thrones perspective, but it's also. Oh well, we got to see Amelia Clark naked on screen. Yeah, and I know I went on a little bit of a rant earlier, but just sit through this one again. It's gonna be a mild one. But I hate it that people equate the show to just nudity and violence and cursing, and that's the only reason that people watch the show because they could completely cut all of that out, and it would still be the best TV show on television. Without a doubt, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And looking on the message boards, I mean, literally, there are pages and pages and pages of debate about, oh, well, was that CGI with a a naked body double, or was that actually Amelia Clark? And at the end of the day, does it even really matter that much? No, it doesn't. And the answer is obviously no. Which, and obviously, look... It's obviously very nice to look at, and if all of the people, you know, if if that's what you like, you know, the, more power to you. If that's the reason you watch the show, 
you're spending a whole lot of time for very little reward, I suppose. But it, I just find it ridiculous that people get all up in arms about, oh, it was actually her, or was it not actually her? And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But I am actually glad to know that it, it, Amelia Clark was very proud to say that, oh, yep, that was all me, you know? Breathe it in. Feel free to bask in my glow, I suppose. Yeah. She was definitely doubling down on that after having a little bit of controversy, you know, with her stance yeah. on this stuff in the past. Yeah, which is great because that same confidence that you can see in Amelia is also what you see in Daenerys at the end of that scene where she's like, all right, well, uh, who thinks that they're better than me at this point? I'm walking out of fire right here after I just <laughs> murdered all these people. Yeah. So if you got something to say, step up and say it. And obviously nobody's going to do that. No, they're not. So, all right, man. Well, you got any final thoughts on the episode? Uh, overall, I gave this episode an eight. Um, yep. I, I gave it, I was going to originally give it a seven. I gave it a point higher because I really enjoyed um, John and Sansa and Daenerys in this one. Um, I know that we're coming to some kind of a conclusion with the King's Landing debacle. But I've kind of disagreed on how they've approached it, uh, like the the path they've taken. But uh, no, I thought it was a good episode, especially for an episode four. You know, normally we're still building and building, but we're continuing to see things happen at a fairly rapid pace. Yeah, um, and I'll, I'll echo a little bit of that. I thought it was about a seven out of ten. Um, Obviously, the stuff at King's Landing is killing me, and I hope that they're doing that on purpose yeah. to make the payoff a little bit more satisfying. But until we get that, it's still going to be a little bit lower. And I really like where the series is going, and it's very, very fast-paced. And I know we've talked about how Dan and Dave said there's not a bad episode in this season, and I agree. I even think the first episode was very, very good. We got a lot of insight and a lot of contextual things that have kind of led us down the road where we are today. And like you said, we're only in episode four. And so it's only going to go uphill or downhill, depending on however you're looking at it from here, you know? Yeah, we are well on our way. So, uh, yeah. So as usual, we want to thank y'all again for uh, sticking with us. I know it's it's kind of dragging on a little bit, but there's so many great things to talk about, and we have so much new material that yeah, every it's time. just awesome to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of new theories, you know, a couple of things wrapping up, a couple of things just kind of starting, and obviously we've got a lot of storylines that are just kind of uh, they're continuing to build, but I think we're getting close. But, yeah, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We enjoy making it. Uh, if you have any co- comments, feedback, please let us know. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at District Dogma. We're on SoundCloud. We'll be on a couple other platforms. Uh, but, you know, happy to be here. If there's anything uh, you guys want to see, you know, feel free to shout it out. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, I, I want to give a quick challenge to all of our listeners out there. Um, we're going to post this link on our Twitter, but uh, th- there's a Game of Thrones quiz out there that, that I found to be pretty dang difficult and i was very proud of my 49 out of 50 yeah. but then ba- but then bauer had to come behind me and make a 50 out of 50 so uh it's only uh, one if, point if any, if any of y'all out there can make a 
an equal or higher score than us, we'll be glad to give y'all a shout out on our next episode. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, we would love to do that. Test your true Game of Thrones knowledge. Absolutely. So, if you uh, if you can can stand it at least, I suppose. <laughs> so, uh, just want to echo again. Thank you everybody for listening in this week. Uh, keep checking back for more. We're going to be keep doing our weekly recaps, and we're going to try to throw some more bonus. Uh, podcast in between all right well that's it for us here don't forget about our sponsors the bolton razor company and shaving company uh the ramsey razor always a close shave and as always the night is dark and and full full of tears. tears